0: Today we are continuing our series of studies entitled Encountering the Holy Spirit and we are turning to Acts chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bible with you, could you turn to Acts chapter 2 as we're reading verses 1 through 13. I mentioned at the beginning of our service that Christians across the globe today are celebrating Pentecost And so we come to what is one of the most dramatic uh, passages in all of Scripture, and I don't say that lightly, but it certainly is that. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. As you're aware, we have been steadily working our way through a series of Sunday morning studies on the Holy Spirit. And today, as we come to Pentecost, I mentioned moments ago that this is one of the most exciting, dramatic, unprecedented events in all of history. Not just spiritual history, but all of history. And so this morning as we come to Pentecost, we remember, of course, its context. The author of the book of Acts is Luke, who wrote the Gospels. And when you put Luke and Acts together, that makes Luke the largest single contributor to the New Testament Now, I suspect if you're anything like me, if someone had asked me, I would immediately say, Paul, surely with 12 or 13 epistles, he has written more of the New Testament than anyone else. But in fact, Luke has written more sentences, words than any other author. And at the end of Luke's gospel, and you see it, of course, again in Matthew and in John, that Jesus ascends into heaven. And so about 10 days or so, we had the Feast of the Ascension, and it happens on a Thursday. And when that happened, someone sent me an email and said, Dear Richard, quote, given our context, it is worth remembering that the easiest way to understand and explain the Ascension is to talk in terms of Jesus working from home. I thought that was pretty clever. And I thought that's exactly what's happened. After all that he has accomplished with his birth, life, ministry, death at Calvary, his resurrection, he is now returning with his father to sit at his father's right hand and reign in glory. And towards the end of John's gospel, and we noticed it as we were making our way through John's gospel a couple of months ago. In John chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, I must go. And when I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. And it's good for you that I go. And you can imagine the disciples saying, now, Jesus, wait a minute. Say that again. It is good for us that you go. Jesus, do you understand what you mean to us? Over these last three years, we have watched miracle after miracle. We have seen your life and your teaching impact and transform lives. You have brought to us not only knowledge of God, but intimacy with Him. And you have enabled us... To grow in our relationship with him. We have sat late at night round fires, talking into the early hours of the morning, conversing with you. You have given to us the peace and the presence of God. And now you're telling us it is good for us that you leave. Jesus, this is hard to believe. And they push back. Jesus goes on to say, when I go, I will send to you another helper, another advocate, the Holy Spirit. And it was at Pentecost, with the coming of the Holy Spirit that the redemptive purposes and plans, his eternal decrees, began to move into a new phase of life and ministry, first among his disciples, then among the people in Jerusalem, then among all the people who had gathered, and eventually the gospel would, of course, spread across the world. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, not only do you have the influence of God, not only do you have the enabling grace of God, not only do you have Him strengthening you inside, but please understand, you have the fulfillment of God's purposes from eternity past that He would now dwell in us. Not just an influence, not just a power, but God himself, the third person of the Trinity, co-equal with the Father, co-eternal with the Son, he who has complete and utter union and communion with God, now lives in us. And that is the remarkable, miraculous events of Pentecost. Now, for us, the temptation when it comes to Pentecost is this. We tend not to spend too much time thinking about the Holy Spirit till Pentecost and beyond. And then, in our minds, the popular misconception is the Holy Spirit has come and we can see him written all over the book of Acts. We see him written all over the New Testament epistles. We see him actively involved all the way to Revelation. But being a popular misconception, we tend to forget that he was active in the Old Testament as well. In Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created. And in the words that immediately follow, we discover the Holy Spirit is hovering over God's created order there is the Holy Spirit right there, Genesis 1 the opening verses and then you see him actively at work in the life of individuals sometimes prophets are anointed for a season sometimes Solomon, David of course anointed for a season We saw it last week in David as he's writing Psalm 139. He's shaking his head in incredulity. He cannot get his mind around that the presence of God is with him every moment of every day. And he writes in that Psalm, and we looked at it last week, where can I flee from your spirit? Right there. And then, of course, you have the prophecy from Joel and Ezekiel that a day would come when God himself, would touch your lives and dwell within. Ezekiel thirty six twenty-six. When God says to Ezekiel, The day will come when I will take from you your heart of stone, and I will replace it with a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will give you a new heart and cause you to follow my decrees. It's right there, prophesied, looking forward to it. In fact, later in this chapter, and we don't have time to cover it, Peter quotes from the prophecy of Joel. And what he's saying is that Pentecost is a fulfillment of all of the purposes and plans of God from eternity past, and they're coming to fulfillment. And no wonder, no wonder they are spectacular, supernatural events taking place. And when we begin the passage, it tells us when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And so with the coming of the Holy Spirit, you have three supernatural manifestations. A loud, powerful noise. Wind. If you've ever been close to a tornado, you get a sense of that kind of sheer volume of what is taking place. And that was the first sign. God was on the move. He was active. He's moving forward. He's ushering in the next phase of His redemptive purposes. Secondly, You have the signs of fire, flames of tongue above the heads of those who were there, symbolizing purity, symbolizing the burning away of chaff and dross and leaving a purity behind. And thirdly, you have this strange phenomenon of the apostles, the disciples, the believers who were there, Speaking in other tongues. And we notice, of course, that Medes and Parthians, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, heard them speaking in their own language. And they're saying, how can this possibly be? They're talking of the wonders of God in our own tongue. And here is the Holy Spirit enabling them to speak. Symbolic, of course. Of the gospel spreading across the known world. That's what's taking place. Now, having said all of that, look at the list of people. Who were there. There is a whole list that starts at verse 9. It runs all the way up almost to the end of verse 11. And they finish with Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs. And then there's a little dash. Can you see that in the text? And in the original Greek, that dash is not there. In the original Greek, it says, residents of Greenville and Scotsman. That's the other two groups who are in here. And people tend to miss it or just glide over it, but it's right there. And for all my silliness, the passage begins when the Feast of Pentecost came. Pentecost took place 50 days after the Passover. So think back 50 days to that first Easter weekend. And if you're thinking, Richard, what is the feast of the Passover? Think Thanksgiving. Jewish people from around the Greco-Roman world would make their way to Jerusalem, see family and friends. Of course, they would go to the temple to offer up Thanksgiving for the harvest that's just been gathered in. And that's why there were folks there from all the known world. That's why the Holy Spirit came on that day to impact so many who would then, 3,000 who would then scatter across the Roman world and the gospel would go with them. And when they got home, people would begin to look at them and say, something has happened to you. What is it? Because their lives would change. God would now take a central spot in their life. Whereas before, he was kind of there. Yes, they prayed. Yes, they would go to the synagogue at the weekends and occasionally up to Jerusalem. But suddenly their faith had become real. Suddenly he was not some distant deity but a living, real, personal God because the Holy Spirit was now dwelling within them. He had convicted them of their sins and of course they had submitted and surrendered their lives to him. And that creates quite an impact in a person's life and all of that was taking place. And the other thing that's worth noticing is this, that the Holy Spirit came and dwelt within all of them. Not just the apostles, not just those who had followed Jesus, that wider band of disciples, but all of them. In other words, here was God fulfilling His promise of the Old Testament and eternity past, not just individuals, not just for a season, not just influencing and leading and guiding their lives, but now physically to dwell within them. Dwell within them. And please understand this, the Holy Spirit did not come in all of His sovereign power in some kind of hesitant, grudging manner. In fact, He came in all of His fullness gladly, willingly to engulf the life of others. Towards the end of the New Testament, you have 1 John chapter 3. And in chapter 3, John is describing the Christian life. And he said, God lavishes upon us his love. Lavishes. He pours it out. That's the symbolism contained in this passage. Spectacular as it is. And there is for the apostles that wider band of disciples from people who had traveled around the world, as we said, it is the case that no longer do they simply have an intellectual or an emotional understanding of the death of Christ. Now they begin to realize the depth of what had taken place. That God in His sovereign love and grace had the sin of the world upon his Son and his Son as a substitute for our sin took our sin on himself and it is fully accomplished salvation has come and been accomplished by Christ at Calvary and now the application of all that happened takes place at Pentecost as the gospel begins to impact Others, and of course begins to spread throughout the world. As I begin to wrap up the second point and move into our final phase, please hear this. And we've been saying this on Sundays over the last two and a half or three years to remind ourselves of the significance and value of it. And it's this, that the same moral and supernatural power that brought Christ back from the dead lives in us isn't that something that's the biblical doctrine of union with Christ it's not simply that he loves you although he does it's not simply as we said moments ago the Holy Spirit is influencing and leading and guiding but he dwells within you The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, he who has complete union and communion with God, now lives within and dwells in the heart of the Christian. That's why when things are going wrong, he gets alongside us and lifts us up. That's why when we sin and give in to its seduction and its deception, he gets along and he encourages us and he picks us up and he enables us to continue to live out our lives. When Peter first met jesus and remember it's peter who's about to give what is one of the most powerful sermons of all time when jesus first met peter he looks at peter and he says to him you are simon but you will be peter you are but you shall be Because when we respond to the gospel, when we surrender and submit our lives to him, what we discover is this. Not only do we have a living relationship with God, but he now empowers us and he equips us and he dwells within us. That's what's happening. We have a new identity. You are, but you shall be. Now you might be sitting there this morning saying... Richard, okay, I hear what you're saying. I think I knew most of that, but it's good to be reminded. I have to confess, I didn't so much focus on the Old Testament, but I'm beginning to see all of that. But Richard, this is what I need from you this morning. Please explain to me, in clear, unambiguous terms, how the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost affects my life. Richard, right at the moment, I am struggling with children and grandchildren at home who haven't been to school for the last eight or ten weeks. It's driving us nuts. We just do oh we don't know what to do. We're getting on each other's nerves and so it goes. How does the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost help me? How does it help me when my brother in law tells me that his business has closed, will never reopen again? How does it help me when a neighbour three doors down has lost her job and she doesn't know what to do? Richard, help me understand what's happening as COVID restrictions are gradually, carefully, prayerfully lifted. Will my children be safe to go back to school in August? What if I go to a restaurant and it's half full? Can I go in there with confidence? What about coming to church on Sunday morning? Can you guarantee that I'll be healthy? Can you guarantee my future? Help me understand how the Holy Spirit makes a difference as I seek to live out my faith every day in the midst of a national state of emergency. Please help me with that. And Richard, please don't go off in some tangent on principles of hermeneutics and interpreting biblical uh, text or the theology of theodicy. Talk to me in clear, uncertain terms. Well, let me try. With the coming of the Holy Spirit into a person's life. And I think I've made the point that he now dwells within his children. And because we now have a relationship with him, that's the key to unlocking how to live out your faith amidst all of the challenges and restrictions of COVID-19. And the key is relationship. For us, sometimes we're tempted to think, if I do this and I do that and I do this and I do that, then I can live the Christian life. But the Christian life is not so much about doing, rather, it's about being. Now let me explain, if I can simplify it a little. The Christian life is not about do this, do that, do the other. It's not a science experiment. And you'll always get the same result. But it is about a relationship. And no relationships are about a science experiment. Do this, do this, do this, and you get the same result. It's about a relationship. Ask any married couple. Ask any mom and dad about their relationships with their children. It's about a relationship. And it's about a relationship in this sense that when you enter into a relationship, time, effort, investment is crucial if our relationship is ever to go from here to here. Now let me explain on a Sunday morning and we have heard it already this morning if Tom is conducting the orchestra and the choir if we have musicians playing CC or others are singing you know that when they begin to play, when they begin to conduct when they begin to sing their mind is not on wait a minute if they're playing the piano where is middle C and where is F sharp and where is my bass notes no Because they're able to play because of hundreds of hours of practice and commitment and dedication. And they eventually get to the point where they are playing is second nature to them. And that's what happens with the coming of the Holy Spirit. What you discover is, not only is He indwelling you, but He enables you. He equips you to walk alongside Him day by day by day. He impresses upon you the need for prayer. He begins to convict you to the point where you understand that spending time in the pages of God's word equips and enables you, it feeds your soul to live out your faith so you get to the point where you are living the Christian life becomes what? You do the spiritual things naturally, and the natural things spiritually is second nature. You are a Christian. You don't do Christian. You are being, you are living out your faith, you are being a Christian. That's what's happening. That's where the Holy Spirit Helps, encourages, strengthens Equips until it becomes Second nature Now the difficulty of course is because It's relationship and the other Difficulty is because sin is Always out there trying to Deceive you, trying to pull you away Trying to insist that you nothing and will never amount to nothing And who do you think you are Trying to go deeper in your relationship With God through the Holy Spirit Come on I know who you are. And please remember this, that every time God speaks to you, he uses your name, and Satan calls you by your sin. Ever been there? Satan calls you by your sin, but God calls you by your name. You are, but by my grace you will be. That's what's taking place. And when we submit and surrender every decision, our motivations, our desires, then, then, when we begin each day focused on Him, then He encourages, then He strengthens. And when sin comes our way, do you remember the epistle of James? Submit yourself to God. Resist The devil and he will flee from you. But it begins, submit yourself to God. It is a relational dynamic. Now let me begin to draw things to a close with this final thought. Across the road from where Ruth and I live are two of the cutest wee girls in the world. And I've mentioned them before. A couple of weeks, Kate, who will be six, Then a few weeks after that, Gray will be 10. And over the last year, especially uh, about a year ago, Kate was learning to ride her bicycle for the first time. And the first time she sat on her bicycle, here was mum and dad, of course, she's a wee girl, so it's a pink bicycle, and she sat there, she had training wheels, and she would lean forward and hold the handlebars, and mum and dad would put one hand behind on the seat and one on the handlebars and walk around a little cul-de-sac, and Kate got very excited that at last she was riding her bicycle. And then she learned to be able to steer when Dad would take his hand off, and she thought by that stage she was the bee's knees. And then, of course, she moved to pedalling, not just sitting and Dad pushing. And so now she was pedaling, holding the handlebars, and learned how to brake. And so there were three things going on at once. And then eventually she wanted to be like her big sister, so off came the training wheels. And mom and dad spent some time helping her with her balance. And then when she got her balance, she was doing what? She could keep her balance, she learned to steer, she learned to brake, she learned to pedal all at once. And within a couple of days I could see her rushing back and forward and where I am in my study I can see outside and I keep turning away thinking she's going to crash. But she was enjoying all of this freedom and all of this spontaneity because it was now second nature to her. She wasn't thinking, oh now this is the brake and this is the pedal and I need to put my foot down. It was coming naturally. Likewise in the Christian faith, the more The more time you spend with him, the more time you spend in the pages of his word, you'll hear his voice. The more you invest time and effort and energy. In other words, the more you invest in that relationship, you will discover how much easier it is to be a Christian. Because as we said moments ago, you do the natural things spiritually and the spiritual things naturally. Now in the course of this week, you will inevitably, and whenever someone wants to grow in their faith, whenever you are determined to go deeper, you will find opposition. Do you remember in the passage right at the end, verse 13, when they were talking of the wonders of God in other languages, some said they have had too much wine. It was dismissed. Because it's easier to dismiss something than it is to take it seriously. And when you are ready to grow in your faith, that's when the Holy Spirit will encourage. That's when he will strengthen you. And when you find yourself a little wobbly, he's going to be right there with you, steadying you. When you're going too fast, he's going to remind you to use the brakes. When you come off and you cut your knee, what's going to happen? He's going to stand you up. He's going to draw you back, sit you on his knee. He'll wipe that wound. He'll use a little antiseptic to clean it out and make it healthy again and then he'll put you back down he'll dry your tears and he will encourage you and so when you are thinking what will I do about those in my family who are unemployed What will I do about those whose businesses will never restart? What will I do about my children's education? Where is all of this going? You do what? You go back and you climb up onto his knee and you rest there while he says to you, I've got the whole world in my hands and that includes you. And you can rest in me. And you can trust me. Do you think I went to Calvary for you and I'm going to give up now? Do you think I'm going to walk away? No. And then when he stands you up, takes you back to the bicycle, and he puts you on again, don't be surprised if he leans over and whispers to your soul, you are, but by my grace you are. Will be. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you on this Pentecost Sunday. We come with a sense of frustration and deep concern about the difficulties we face as a nation. And Father, we know that those difficulties become very real to us in our own families, in our own futures. And Father, whether we are here live at worship this morning, or whether we are watching on the streaming service, Father, we ask that you would put your hand upon us, equip us, enable us, strengthen us, and above all things, let us once again sense the presence of your Spirit, enabling and strengthening us. Father, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.